0: I was a diversity hire. If I hadn't gotten in, I wouldn't have gotten there. Getting there on the merits is is a ridiculous concept in this business, where
1: you can be <laughs> somebody's
0: brother and get on their TV show. So why why does anybody want to get out there on their on their own? It's not right. it's not about that. So you got to get in, and once you're in, and you have and it's about knowing enough people. Really, that's what it is. You are building your village because you're right. in this business for the next 50 years
1: we can't have it both ways
0: right and so right, right. we got to
1: get in there and kill it and know that every time like for me I always felt like whoever's coming behind me like if I stink this up it's going to leave a stink around the idea of the diversity hire yeah and that will be more challenging for the next person who comes and that's behind so uh, unfair. yeah it's
0: so unfair because you know the other guys don't have that same thing then it's just one guy who screwed up
2: Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman is a podcast on directing for anybody that's quite simply ever watched anything. Pete converses with a wide range of fellow directors, writers, actors, showrunners, producers, executives, and more on a journey to determine just what makes a good director and why we'll always need stories. The Director is Pete Chapman's digital studio, built on the pillars of craftsmanship that ensure a unique vision. I'm talking about story, innovation, perspective. Learn more about the director, and better yet, get your official director's chair wear by visiting www.drctr.video. That's drctr.video.
1: All right, people, what's up? Welcome to episode 34 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman. And I am happy to welcome our guest. Uh, Kelly Edwards, the author of The Executive Chair, A Writer's Guide to TV Series Development. So this is uh, for all you writers out there, pick that up, scoop it up, read it, get into it. Um, honestly, I think it's for anybody in uh, in the television and film industry. There are a lot of gems in this book, um, and Kelly is very candid on her journey. Um, But before we get into the book and the interview with the lovely Kelly Edwards, I will give you the rundown on what's been popping off in my world. Um, Let's see, uh, at the time of this recording, uh, because I'm gonna let y'all know a little backstory. I do these interviews um, in bunches when I can, when I have windows of time because uh, time is a, a, a precious commodity. And uh, after I do the interviews, I wait until the launch of the interview or the episode to do the intro and the outro. So for those of you watching on YouTube, you'll notice the outfit change um, because you know it's two different times. But um, as I'm recording this now, Uh, I just finished day seven of nine on episode 102 of Reasonable Doubt, and it is going, as they say, somewhere in the world swimmingly. Uh, the cast has been amazing. We've got Emiati Coronaldi, we've got, uh, Michael Ely, McKinley Freeman, Sean Patrick Thomas, Pauletta Washington, Tim Joe, Christopher Casarino, uh, Angela Grovey, Shannon Kane, Tiffany Yvonne Cox, uh, who else? I don't want to leave anyone out. Uh, Nefertari Spencer, we've got an amazing cast. They're all um, in a variety of shows that you have watched and probably are watching, Um, but happy about the work we've been able to achieve. feel like we're in a a good groove watching these characters kind of come to life with the talents of these actors. And the crew is uh, congealing. And I think that's uh, all part of the beautiful TV production process. Um, What else, other than that, uh, I recently did a cool bit of press for HBO Max for um, episode five of The Flight Attendant that I directed. Um, and that'll be coming to you soon. I will not step on the release date but it will be coming to you soon. Uh, and my understanding is that I'm talking, uh, I'll be you know it'll be my first after the episode little tidbit talking about uh what we accomplished and and what our approach was in the visual aspect of the storytelling and in um you know how we how we at- attacked and interpreted the story so, super amped about that. That was an amazing episode, very challenging. Um, And for me as a director, um, I'm always looking for the challenge. And so in a bit of a perfect segue, um, I'll loop it back to Kelly. I met her uh, coming out of uh, my short film Black Card, being selected uh, into the HBO ABFF uh, short film competition, um, which put $5,000 into the pocket of my production um, as part of being a finalist, as one of five finalists. And uh, that kind of put me on a road to all of the director development programs that I did, um, including Sony, HBO Access, Disney, ABC, and NBC Universal, all of which I mentioned in my book, Transitions. But uh, Kelly was one of um, many people, or really a handful of people like Brett King over at Sony um who were instrumental in in helping to shape my understand helping to shape the skills that I had um this kind of raw talent and kind of learning how to mold it for what this television industry uh and really the industry of Hollywood would be Responsive to, so I could go from a guy who wanted to work uh, to a guy who was working, and so I'm I'm really happy. We talk about that in the interview. I'm um, very candid. Um, had the pleasure of last seeing Kelly in Paris when we were there in 2019 for New Year's Eve. Uh, Kelly and I, and um, she's just a real person, real down to earth person that has gone from um, mentor to to friend, and I think that's um I, I think that's pretty dope. So. Without further ado, let's step into episode 34 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman, starring Kelly Edwards.
2: Roll sound.
1: Speed. The interview. Take one. Tell me, what in your mind and in your experience makes a good story?
0: You know... That's you starting off right now with a hard one That is (laughs) we jumped into the deep end. Um, What makes a good story? I think my personal preference for story, and I think that story can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. I know that there's obviously there's the Joseph Campbell um, idea. There's the Chris Vogler idea. There's the uh, Robert McKee. So everyone has this template, which I do think holds true. Which is, you have a really compelling character. That person goes on a journey. There are setbacks along the way. There is a a surge and a triumph, um, a major major loss of some kind, and then a rise at the end. Which I think, I know that when I'm thinking about and going to movies, and and they don't have those elements, I miss them because mm. I'm I'm anxious to have I'm anxious to follow that format. There's something about Maybe it's even the DNA that we all have, or maybe it's just conditioning, but there's that need for us to see the trials and the tribulations and then the successes. And then we want to know that there's this crisis that we then have to overcome. And I think it's just this kind of innate feeling that we all feel like um, that could be me. But I do think it all starts with a, a compelling character. I think if you don't have that and you just I find that the stories that have that sort of go for just concept alone, leave me feeling hollow. I need to feel that emotion. I need to feel that gut of that gut um, response of um, of elation at the end. Those Mm -hmm. are the best stories for me. But it all starts from character and we don't have character. You don't know who your character is or what journey they're going on. It all falls apart. I think right. in my own writing I find that that I have to constantly tweak and calibrate and recalibrate, well, what is the story? What is the most the best way to tell that story? Sometimes the hardest part is knowing that, hey, I thought this great idea and and it should take this road, but then your character goes, no, 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 no. that's not actually the story I want to tell. And their character tries to push you into something else, and you have to follow mm-hmm. that and then leave behind what you your preconceived notions of what story you were trying to tell and really follow it down the rabbit hole. And then you kind of come to the place that you didn't want to come to in the first place, which is, it's hard. It's, right. hard to, it's hard to go there. It's hard to get to the juicy center because it is so, you know, it's it can be damaging. It can be traumatic. It can be heart-wrenching, but it's also ultimately the most fulfilling stories come out of that.
1: I feel I feel like writers and actors have probably the a unique challenge in the sense that the actor has to dive into the abyss, the writer has to create it, right? And as humans we're more or less averse to the types of things that make good stories, right? <laughs> like we don't yes. want to we don't want to have days like your like your favorite action movie where the world's at stake. I don't want that shit to be Friday. <laughs> you know, exactly. I want to just get up and, and and do the thing I do at 10, 15. Um, so what's the challenge for the writer you think in trying to fight this natural inclination to avoid those things while being tasked with pushing their characters into those types of uh, vulnerable, vulnerable situations.
0: Yeah, that's the hard thing. I think um, I think as writers, we are conditioned. I actually saw this I, I, just last night. I was watching. I stumbled across St. Vincent's Masterclass. Was not even mm. thinking about it. Never heard of her. And all of a sudden, I'm watching her do this whole thing about creating music. And almost every single thing that she said could apply to a a script, mm-hmm. and in it she talks about sometimes doing those hard things and coming to that place where you are really tapping into. I'm, I'm going to see what did she say? She said, "As artists, we are porous, and so mm-hmm. we absorb." And I think, and she also said something about, and somewhere you all that has to come out. So I do think that we internalize, we take it in, and then we're trying to make sense of the world, and we're trying to. Um, give the world meaning and to share it so that we can be whole, but then it also by default makes other people whole. So I think that 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 innate need to tell those stories also is the need to work it out emotionally. I think we can't help it, but it's hard. And then God bless all the actors who really have to put themselves out there emotionally and do that work because then they have to take that information they have to make uh make it feel real for them and then on the other end of that um let their guts out onto the right. onto the screen and i'm just like i'm i don't i don't have that kind of courage i could do that on a on a computer but that kind of courage <laughs> that's wild you know
1: yeah yeah it's beautiful when you see it is is what was the first story it could be a movie or you know family legend, but like the first thing where you were like, oh, that impacts me, or I see what that story is trying to do.
0: Yeah, I had this, um, this question came up recently at a, at a, uh, I was doing a talk at a festival at Catalyst Fest, and, um, and I was talking about, and I don't even know if it was the very first story, I can't say it was the first story, but it was certainly one of the most impactful which was when I saw Roots as a child. And it was a an event where the entire family gathered together for every single night. And when it wasn't on, and I think it was like, it was consecutive nights, or it was like a couple nights. And then, you know, you had to wait a couple of days and a couple more nights. But it was so impactful because we had known about the book before it came out. Everyone had read the book. There was a lot of anticipation about it. And when it when you finally saw it on on television, it was such an event that I can remember when I think about it and I think about watching that television, I can remember exactly where I sat. You know, right. I can remember how I felt. I can remember the pride that I felt. Um, right. I remember not ever having heard that story before, and I was a kid. so um but it was so impactful that that you remember that moment. you know, you remember where you were when, 9/11 happened for sure. Right. Um, I remember where where I was when I when I saw Roots.
1: And sure was that, that was that an episode a night for five nights? How, what was it? Was something like that?
0: It was, yeah. but it was, and I, it might have been like two hours per. It might have been, but it. And I do I don't remember because I remember a lot of the shows that were like that. You know, Thorn Birds and Shogun and all those things that had come out. Captains and the Kings at the same time. Those kinds of epic, rich men poor men series when they came mm-hmm. out most of the times they were every night. Sometimes there were, it was like a Monday or a Tuesday night and then they skip a Wednesday, you know, and go to a Thursday or it would be the following week and get another couple of episodes. So I don't remember exactly how it laid out in the week,
1: but I right. do remember
0: that it was, it was a point television for sure. You could not, uh, you could not be a person of color and not have watched that when it was on right. at the time.
1: Right. So how, what brought you to pursuing an education uh, in this field at
0: Vassar? Well, I I had been in theater and dance as a kid. So I took ballet classes, two ballet classes every day from maybe seven to 18, I think.
3: Wow.
0: Uh, And I was doing toe work and I was just, I really desperately wanted to be a prima ballerina and I did not have the body for it. I was a, a short, chunky girl with a short neck and and a, you know, and thick thick thighs. And I did not have what it took to be a prima ballerina, but I desperately wanted to be some sort of a dancer. And um, and I loved musicals and I wanted to tap and I was terrible at it. So I was just like wanted, I was like that kid. who was like, mom, I want to be a star. <clears throat> But I knew I didn't really want to be a star. I didn't want to be an actor. I just loved entertainment. And when I got into high school, I was the gal who was in the theater department. So I did, um, you know, we did the musicals, we did Oklahoma. (laughs) I Uh can still remember all the, all the the songs today, but I was that kid. And then when I went to college at Vassar, um, they didn't have a dance department. So I got into the theater department and was a theater major and thought at one point I was, I was originally going to be an English major, but I ended up having so many theater credits that they said, well, you know, you could graduate as a theater major. And I was like, okay, I'll do that. I won't right. do a thesis. Um looking back on it. I go, I should have done both. I should have done the thesis so that I could have had the English credit. Not that it mattered in my life, but mm. um, you know, it's just one of those check marks you kind of want to go. I should have had two degrees. So, I think that the 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 pathway was just I was just following what I loved, and that was following all of the the plays that I was doing and writing things on my own, you know, and so it was just sort of um it was just a passion. And then right. when I got out of school out of school, I knew that I didn't want to I didn't want to act. I wanted to be behind the scenes. i I was really clear on that really early. and um so when I got out of school, i I just went right into, you know, the behind-the-scenes stuff, the development process, the the writing side of the business.
1: So you so was there any uh, was there a gap in time between Vassar and Emerson and pursuing uh, writing for film and TV, or oh my did you
0: God. go? No, no, no. It was like a 30 thirty-year gap. Oh my
3: God. <laughs>
0: yes, I am. I am proof positive that you can have a you can start a a career over. You can do something completely. Um, different than you, than you started out being, but, but the, I'm going to say it was like a circular trajectory because I think I went on my own hero's journey. How about that? Yes. Um, yes. I started off, um, I started off in the, working for a, uh, in a talent manager's office and I was miserably bad at it. Um, but I was looking for, you know, a way in. Wait, can, I was
1: can we for- can we start? What, what were you bad at? <laughs> oh, everything. I loved it.
0: <laughs> everything. And of course, at the time, you think that you're brilliant, but I was yeah. terrible at it. So um, I didn't understand when people said, are you a, are, what do they usually say? They say, are you, are you detail-oriented? And I'm like, who cares about details? I'm like, what is that about? And then you won't realize until you hire your own assistant. Oh, that's why it's important to be detail oriented, but I would let things slip through the cracks all the time. I worked for Dolores Robinson. So Holly Robin, mom was my boss. Um, My friend, Mark Kaplan knew Holly from college. They went to Sarah Lawrence together, but I had known Dolores. This is how twisted this, this whole business goes back, right? When my mom and I were living in Beverly Hills when I was a kid. My mom knew Dolores's husband. I can't remember his name right now. I want to, was it Gordon Robinson? Anyway, she knew Dolores's first husband. They were friends. So I already had, had, I had her name in my, you know, in my memory bank. But when Mark, who I went to high school with, went to college with Holly, he oh. got out of, college and was working for Dolores for a summer but there was a gap a one month gap between him leaving her as, you know as a summer job and her new assistant who was starting i think in september and he said right. would you like to take over for me and i said sure so i went in and i took that job and on a daily basis i was screwing something up
3: <laughs>
0: i was forgetting to give people you know their their um their appointments. I was like, she was always yelling at me for some reason. And she, for me, she was a very formidable, scary kind of boss. And the, in retrospect, you go back and she's like, no, she's just doing her job. She was just trying to get you know people booked. You were the one sure. who was like a, an idiot. So I worked for her for a month. Um, I learned what not to do. Uh, you know, my I was just so lackadaisical at answering the phones and giving her messages. And yet there was a job open across the the courtyard, which was working for a casting company. So I went over there and I asked them if they needed, you know, if they needed somebody to start right away and they hired me. And it was great because again, every single job that I've ever had in my entire life has been a hookup from a friend. So that job then let me, let me to, um, to working for a couple of writers who were in development. They had just rolled off executive producing um, the the uh, the Jeffersons, and they were looking for an assistant. They hired me, and then I got a really great education in funny. And mm. they were sticklers for everything, and and would argue over what sound was funnier and what number was funnier. And um, and I just learned, I soaked up everything because I got to type all their scripts. And and back then we were typing on selectric typewriters, and then we finally got a Wang. So this was like way back in the dark ages, but I got to sit at their feet and hear them talk about comedy. And I never thought I was funny uh, until I got a, I had my first breakup, my first real adult breakup. And then I realized, oh, I'm caustically funny. Like I, I really can go with it, but I, but usually it's about myself and I started to really tap into, oh, I'm actually, I'm actually not a, drama person I am a comedy person but it was like that kind of winding road of oh I I see something shiny over here let me try it out and then find something over here so it was all pretty much within a same direction which was following the written word it was kind of following the what does it look like on a page and I was a huge huge reader um and then I just sort of got into you know the writing of it for myself, even though I I had always written even as a kid. Um, learning how to write scripts was, was just like the whole world just started to open up for me. This is
1: really did good. you did you have uh, family support in these endeavors? Where they like ah uh, our daughter's out she's she's writing or she's you know <laughs> assisting or where they like what are you doing you know
0: Yeah, yeah. I'd actually like you to hear answer that question because I feel like. I, don't we all have those those family members who are like, maybe you should get a real job.
3: You know? <laughs> we
0: don't understand what you're doing. You know, that kind of thing. Um, for me, my mother has always from day one been my champion. And every single day she will call me up and say, oh, you're just the most brilliant person in the world. So she she thinks I'm a genius no matter what I do. And I think if I hadn't had that kind of support, for sure, I would not be anywhere near successful in this business. My stepfather, on the other hand, had his dreams crushed at a very early age. And so he, I think, felt concern that I was going to wander into something that I couldn't make a living at he was a dentist his entire life, but he always wanted to be a writer. He wanted to be a novelist. Mm. And he wrote his first novel in his 70s, late 70s, I think. Wow. And, um, and until he passed, which was really the week, a couple of days before COVID, before the lockdown here in 2020, he, every, every, time, every chance he got, he talked about his book, his one yeah. book. He'd written other books, but they were about dentistry. But this was like his pride and joy. He'd written some beautiful short stories. But he, I think, was was told by his parents who came out of the depression, you know, get a real job. So Mm -hmm. when I got out of college and I said, I want to get into entertainment, my mom was like, go do it. Whatever you want to do, we're here for you. And my dad, my stepdad was, uh, you should get a job as a receptionist. I will make a phone call for you for somebody I know who's hiring. And we had a very big push and pull throughout our entire relationship. We did not get along at all. I think respected each other for sure. But the funny thing is is that he was always the first person who showed up at every job that I had. He would always come for lunch. He would always, I would introduce him around to everybody at the office. It was a source of pride for him. Um, But he was that typical what's it called? The great Santini kind of guy. He was that guy. Uh He was the guy Uh who, who doesn't really tell you he's proud of you. He shows you in very, very small ways. And so, so we had a very contentious uh, relationship and it made me though, go, I have to prove to him Mm -hmm. that I'm, that I can do this. And so one of the last things that happened just before he passed away, um, I got a bonus from the last bonus that I got, I think it was, it was March, it was actually March. It was the big first week of March of 2020. My last bonus as a, as a executive. And I, when I told him, I mean, when I told him how much it was, it was a crazy bonus. It was really good. Uh, just seeing the smile on his face. Like he was like, I know you're going to be okay. Like, I don't have to worry about you. Right. And, and that was like one of the last, things that we actually talked about and after that he he couldn't speak anymore wow but, yeah That's so beautiful. I uh, yeah it was like I Yes, I did have some some support and then and then I had support in that kind of backhanded you better right. make it happen
1: right
0: otherwise yeah, it's, this it's, is gonna be bad the, for you
1: it's the weird thing where like the generations before us I guess it, it was not always expressed with uh clarity it was often I'm protecting you by telling you how horrible it's going to be and how, how much you should change your goal. Um, right. I was, right. I was fortunate. That and, adjust, I had
0: and adjust your ex- expectations. Like don't think expectations here. Expectations Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But that's the, but that's the heart, you know, I, it, that's one of my favorite scenes in a uh, quick tangent, but in pursuit of happiness when when Will tells his son, like, you know, oh, you, you're you not going to be that good at basketball, you know, and then he like checks himself and he's like, don't ever let anybody tell you anything like that. Like, that's right. them speaking to themselves, you know. Right. Um. But for us, and the reason I asked if you had that support, it's like in this industry, what we do is without a clear path and often requires, you know, uh just some financial wizardry to to make it. Um, I just wonder I, I know that so many people stop along the journey before they reach their goal. And it's not that they wouldn't have reached it. It just maybe lack the support or lack, you know, they can't graduate with six figure debt and go be an assistant, you know, for five years. So um I was just interested in knowing how that kind of came together for you because it it seems to probably propel this whole hero's journey that you've had yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think too. I mean, you have to have a relentless amount of optimism and enthusiasm and just Mm. this dying need to do something. And I kind of say that if I wasn't, I was, if I wasn't doing what I'm doing now, the, the creativity would burst out of me in some way, even if I was in a, you know, working as a banker I would be doing something that would, it would have to come out. And I don't know what that is. I don't know why, I don't know why some of us have that. And some of us, maybe we have different kinds of needs and outlets. Maybe it's if you're a mechanic, you are, your artistry is your, is your ability to work on, you know, electrical mechanical things i don't know i don't know and i don't understand when people don't have it i had a friend of mine recently say she said oh you know you when you think of when you think you want to do something you could just go do it she said i i admire the fact that you have a dream she said i never had a dream Hmm. and i went i that's the saddest thing i've ever heard anybody say that you never had a dream that you never had that desire to do something whatever that is
1: yeah. I, and I would, I wonder, I wonder who beat it out of her, you know, cause yeah. it, it had to be there at some point. Right. Um, yeah, this turning sad, I guess, but, uh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, but I think again, again, it's, it's the conversation. I think we all have on a daily basis about fear. Yes. Because we have to fight the fear. We have to every day get up and go, Yeah, the world's going to tell us that we can't do it. They're going to shut us down. They're going to not buy our project. They're going to deny us the job or the promotion or whatever it is. The world's going to try to tell you all the reasons you shouldn't do it.
3: Right.
0: Um, But you need to have that one thing of why you should. That's that speaks so strongly to you that yells at you every day to wake up and go do it. So I do think that that's what that has to. Trump everything. And right. I think for me, for sure, it started yelling so so loudly at one point that I couldn't shut it up. And I had to do it. Even though if it was going to be a huge leap off the end of the gangplank, hmm. I had to do it. And I'm so happy I did because I do think that if I hadn't done it and I always wondered. What if? Boy, that's right. a terrible way to die. That's a terror. Like right. I feel like tomorrow I could get hit by a bus and I would have literally felt felt so long as I had this last year, I would be fine. Uh, I'm good.
1: Uh, I love that. I love that. I don't like the bus part, but I, I love I love the, <laughs> the <laughs> I, I that's that's the whole point of the journey to have that feeling. You know, um I do want to and I want to get to the book and to this pivot, but uh, let's kind of just take the 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 steps between uh, working with Dolores Robinson and then being an executive like how what was the journey there? What were you navigating in act two of the Kelly Edwards movie?
0: Yes, but before we do that, can I ask you a favor? Because oh, yes. I feel like I feel like I trampled on something. You were about to say something about who was in your corner and I and uh, I stopped you with something I said. So I want to go back to that.
1: Oh uh, for me, you know, I think I was I think about this often. Um, I think about nature versus nurture, right? I feel like um, I have no more eloquent way to say it, but I'll say like, if my circumstances would have been different, um, I probably would have been a really, really good drug dealer. You know what I mean? Like like really, really successful, not not flunting it, you know, (laughs) staying afloat and people are like, that's the guy, you know? um, because I kind of always was very like deliberate. Um, and I can remember even things going through life where like literally times where I'm like five or six and I'm like watching the adults, like, why y'all doing that? Like, that (laughs) that doesn't make sense. You know, like you're not going to get what you want. And so fortunately, um, my mother, my father, everybody was really supportive of it. Um, I don't know if it, if my OCD kind of, really deliberate methodology of trying to get there helped. You know what I mean? Because uh, it was clear that I had no other intention. I only applied to one school and I had no intention of going anywhere else. And then, you know, after that, it was like, I'm going to make this movie. And I spent six years raising the money and I'm living in the house at 25 years old, you know, trying to do this thing. But I never... Now yeah, that's
0: living at in, in your house at your parents' house till you're 25, it's pretty normal. Yeah. <laughs> you're ahead of the it, curve.
1: <laughs> I was, I was a pioneer, I guess, but it it's, I, ne- but I never felt like, oh, you better hurry up or, oh, they don't, there's no support. Um, I think I had, a, I had incremental moments of proof that I was committed to doing what was required of me um, with no misconceptions about how hard it would be um so yeah I think that I think that's kind of how how it all played out um and so that's why I try and be like supportive of as many folks as I can because it's just that little you could have a a shit morning you know and and it could that could be the day you quit you know and I I remember reading this book um the first time I got paid for it it was about uh it was like maybe I don't know 10-20 different screenwriters talking about the first time they sold something. And William Goldman was talking about how he had been trying to sell all these things, do all this stuff, and nothing would, nothing would sell. And he wrote a short story or something that got, that got purchased for some modicum, you know, small amount of money. And he said, I was going to quit if that thing didn't sell. You know what I mean? Like, right. And, and, and here's the guy who wrote classics and, and legend. how many more legend. How many yes. more of us are walking around like this, you know the the failures in our own hero's journey because we we stopped, yeah, you know, so that uh, uh, that's the long winded answer, I suppose.
0: No, I l- I love that. I literally just talked about William Goldman yesterday huh. as probably the most probably impactful, most brilliant writer. I read Princess Bride when I was young. Like, I just, everything he did was just brilliant. But also, I have a moment, too, where I was working in features as a, was that? I was in a, I guess I was a story editor working for Gary Marshall's company. And I was trying to get that next gig. His, his, his job was coming to a close. He was shuttering his, Office because he was going to go be um, a director for hire. He didn't want to develop anymore,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and I had gone up for five jobs, and all five jobs I got a call. Literally one at a time, they said we loved you. You were the person we were going to hire, but we hired someone's, and it was a relative, huh. five times in a row, cousin, brothers, son, whatever it was, five times. And I thought, well, this is a cosmic joke, and this is terrible. I'm gonna. I'm done. I can't do right. it anymore. And I thought, look, here I am, little brown girl in this business. I wanted to be a writer. I couldn't get in the room, even though we were doing a show that was about two brown guys and there was nobody of color in the entire <laughs> writer's room. Um and I I was really disheartened. I was looking around the 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 business and going, There's just no place for me. There were no other major women of color at any of the studios in development the only one that i ever knew of was linda morris who was working for eddie murphy at the time there was nobody else there was nobody i could model my career after so after i got that fifth rejection i said i'm gonna go be a teacher because the best thing that i could remember at at that point was eighth grade english class and i was like i'm gonna go teach eighth grade english and so i filled out the c i took the test filled out my application and I was literally about to, I was walking to the front door to go put it in the mailbox when I got mm-hmm. a call about a job at Fox and I had applied for it. I told, I was told that I wasn't going to get it. So I was like, okay. And it, by the way, that was, I was, again, it was a friend. It was a friend, the situation, the people who were hiring were trying to get their buddy in and I was like, okay, then this is, not for me the universe has spoken and as i was walking to the mailbox my uh, the phone rings in the house my roommate picks up the phone and she says kelly it's fox (laughs) so literally so the the universe was like you're you're you're, come over here
3: it's over here right
0: you know you were looking at the wrong place but we got you over here and I think, just like William Goldman, and I'm sure, like a lot of other people in this business, it just takes that one. It one takes that one, to to do an about face, and then and then you're on the road. So you got to win. So
1: what was, was the Fox job?
0: The Fox job, and I and this I can get you to from point A to point B. But the Fox job was, uh, I was a diversity hire. I was the first minority manager of the comedy department. So Peter Chernin had just started this whole program called minority managers. And he hired, I think four of them over the time that we were there. I don't think they hired anything after, after that, but there was one in comedy, one in drama and two in current mm-hmm. at Fox. And I was the first. So, um, so yeah, I was the diversity, I was the diversity gal, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it worked out and I just got in there and I worked my ass off and, you know, and then kept getting promoted, which is awesome. But the to to answer the because I don't think it's a very interesting trajectory, but the 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 list of jobs, so many of them from Dolores' office through casting the company through working for Don and Jerry. and then I did a series of assistant gigs between um, film and TV, working for Morgan Creek, um, uh, which are Joe Joe Ross company at the time, and then, I worked for Steve Tao and a guy named Rick something or another. I can't remember his name. Rick Schwartz, I think, for Disney um, when they were CEs over there on the feature side. And all the while I was reading for New Line. So I was reading uh, nine scripts a week for New Line and doing coverage just so that I could make rent. And then I was going back and forth just like in little, little tiny jobs. And then a girlfriend of mine that I knew from high school said she was going to work for Laura Ziskin. Did I want to go work with her? And at that company, I ended up getting my first promotion into story to story mm-hmm. editor. And then I went to work for Gary and became his story editor. And then I went to work for Fox. And then at Fox, I went from manager to director to executive director. And then my boss at the time, Tom Noonan, went to run UPN. And he took me with him. So it's just like Got this it. little bit of you know, bup, 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 bup. and then I ended up running the comedy department for UPN. And then, and I loved it because I got to make those decisions about, well, who gets to come in here and pitch and what are they pitching? And then what are we going to buy? And I think for me, the strength of that and the, the responsibility was amazing. I had a lovely, lovely, I loved working there. I got to set the tone for my department. We had Friday parties in my office. (laughs) It was a place where people hung out. Um, it was a really great collaborative sort of feeling. But I also got a chance to say, and this was one of my big things. you know, when you're working development, you don't always have the ability to decide the trajectory that your network is going in. And I realized that I never wanted to hear another show pitched by a white guy that that came in and said, uh, this is a Black family that's living in the ghetto. I said, you right. will never hear that. I will never hear that again. So right. if we were going to do a show about Black people, we wanted to see the diaspora, which is why Girlfriends was set in a, you know, she was a lawyer. Um, so there was, there was a little bit of, there was a shift in my ability to affect, well, here's what we want to do. And this is what we want to say with the programming that we're putting on. And then from there, I realized that, I wanted to expand my repertoire and to do more than just comedy. I wanted to do drama and I wanted to learn how to sell. And I'd been a buyer for my entire career. And if I didn't have another component to my, my um, to my skill set that I was going to quickly find myself out of contention for a lot of jobs, big jobs. So I went and, uh, and partnered up with a guy named Jonathan Axelrod and we had a deal at Paramount for, About six years. And in that I learned to sell from I learned how to sell from him. He was a master salesman and would often sell things that didn't exist. So I was like, I want to know how to do that. So he'd go, he'd call me up and he goes, Yeah, I just talked to the folks at CBS and we just sold something. And I was like, What did we sell? He goes, I don't know yet, but we'll figure it out. So he was that kind of guy who could talk circles around anybody. He was very, very old school Hollywood, just the most fun person to work with. Um, And I learned a lot about, you know, how to be in a room, how to sell something in a room, you know, um, and then how to, uh, and then I brought to him a whole, so he, he was like a generation of, of executives ahead of me and he'd run ABC comedy department before I even teamed up with him. And so he knew a certain level of, of exec and I knew the, the up and coming execs and the mid strata. So We were a good team because we could hit the whole town. And then after that, um, I took a job at NBC Universal working for the diversity department. And it was my first real foray into diversity. And I I had no idea that all of the yelling and screaming I had done for Mm -hmm. decades, um, trying to fight for people of color in the room, either in casting sessions or or in... um, you know, getting them hired as writers or directors was going to finally pay off where I right. could actually do that on a macro scale. So they hired me right. to do diversity for 20 different networks under the NBC Universal banner. And it was a big ass job and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and I was on the road a lot and and had a huge, you know, just a huge amount of scope and and ran the diversity council. So I had all these... You know, presidents of divisions, you know, sort of. I'm gonna say reporting into me because they sort—they really were sort of. We were. I was leading their workshops and their um, a lot of their diversity efforts. Right. But that it was a it was a great gig, a re- really great gig. It was less creative, probably than I was used to. But boy, it was impactful and and interesting.
1: So it 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 sounds like. Um... One of the big takeaways from your journey was that it's so much of an awareness campaign, particularly when you when you mentioned like those five jobs in a row that went to nepotism versus, you know, uh, qualifications. Right. Um, And it's some version of that over and over again. Um, It sounds like the diversity um, work that you were spearheading was really creating awareness for a different type of storyteller. right? Um, to swing it back to directors for a second, what would you say were or are the biggest challenges in getting uh, emerging directors who are not white into the industry?
0: Um, Well, I think we all know that, that, you know, in order to get a gig, you got to get hired. And the problem I think we found... All along, and I've always said this for year for for decades, just because it's obvious, um, is that there have to be enough people in positions of power to hire, and people who are not afraid to hire. Um, and quite honestly, the I'm going to say the lion's share of those folks uh, either have a broader, you know, the people who are hiring who do are successful in the diversity space as as um, as hiring managers are people who have a broader scope of contacts friends they 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 make it their intention you know it's it's really easy in this town because people are moving so quickly to just go to your friends and if your friends right. and your contacts are all white and you don't get out there and you don't have people who are at your house who look like the rainbow you're going to go for the, what's easiest you're gonna go for the person that you you've worked with a thousand times. The difference is is that brown people have a variety of people in their in their friend group. We are naturally our our friend group look very differently. Um, it might be because of where we work or where we live, or the fact that we've just seen and we have a comfort value factor with with everybody. That and I think I I think we see each, ourselves in each other's stories. So I can look at a Latino story and I don't feel like it's their other. Mm-hmm. So I do think that it's it matters who's at the ho- at the top who's hiring, and I think what you're seeing right now is there's becoming a a shift. Yes, of course George Floyd helped everything. George Floyd was a you know was the the gasoline on which the you know everything sort of starts to to burn around us. But we also have major studios now being run by women of color, people of color. Um, we're getting some really key, great um, positions of power. We've had some in the past, not not like this, where I think it's it's starting to impact. Look at Bella Bajeria, look at Channing Dungey, look at Perlina Ibakwe, um, look at Tendo Nagenda, like some of those people, Nigel Kirkendall, who are um, Vanessa uh, Morrison, like look at those people where they've come. And the fact that those people are not going to be afraid to make those hires. So I think we're now in a different place. I hope we're in a different place um, than we've had, than we've been before where it's been a little bit of a struggle. And I said this on clubhouse uh, about a week ago, which is, um, this is true And I, and I'm, I'm not the person who will mince words. I will probably, I kept, I used to always think I was going to get fired by my company because I'm the person who just says it all. I don't care. But, the truth of the matter is, in my entire time of working as a as a creative person, I have never had <laughs> your manager <laughs> calling me. Um, uh, <laughs> never had to have a diversity conversation with a person of color.
3: Right.
0: They they bring it to the table. They usually offer it first. They're usually, hey, this is what's going to look like. The stories are integrated the crews, the cast, it's like I never have to have that conversation. I've only had to have that conversation with people who are not of color. So why is that? Why right. is there that deficiency? Why is there that 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 blind spot? Why is it and why is it that we are always focusing on well, what are the brown people not doing to get there when it's really not their issue? That's not their issue. Mm-hmm. So if you are Finding that your crew and your cast is all white, then you have a problem. Then you have a, you have to go meet people. (laughs) You need to, you need someone to introduce you to a whole bunch of new people. Because the world just doesn't look like that. And you're losing audience. You know, I deliberately do not watch shows. I had a hard time with West Wing. I did not show up to West Wing for years because that pilot was so white. I was mm-hmm. like, you can't have all those people, and by and the end of the day, and nobody of color. When right. I think we had just come off of Bill Clinton's cabinet, right? And then we were launching into Bill, well, maybe or maybe it was, it could have even been Bush's cabinet, but we had Condoleezza Rice, we had uh, Colin Powell. Like, how do you do that? How do you create that world?
3: Right.
0: So I boycott boycotted. Like, can I say that? I boycott oh, that. I boycott <laughs> that like crazy, because. It's just not okay. It hasn't been okay for a really long time. And you cannot live in this world and say, oh, I just didn't see it. Cause then, then I don't know, I don't know. Did you never watch an episode of Oprah? Like, what are you talking
1: about? Right. So, all right, so you feel like with folks now in these positions of power, it's boding well or looking better for more diverse, you know, folks behind the camera uh, stories, all of the, all of the things that kind of have a more, um, nuanced perspective into our lives?
0: Well, I think we have a long way to go for sure. I think there's still a lot of stories that haven't been told. We're still way far behind on agent representation. I'm so Mm -hmm. glad about the cleaning lady, but I wish there was more cleaning ladies out there that, of those kinds of shows. Um, There's just so much we haven't told. We keep telling the same stories over and over again. So yeah, I hope so. I do think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of road to travel before we have arrived. Mm -hmm. But I do think that we, with the spotlight on it, unlike before with the programs out there, with um, with the attention, with the Directors Guild pushing, I think for sure, we need to keep the, you know, the fire burning bright.
3: Right. So
0: I do think that there's, and I think we we all owe it to ourselves to push each other. So I have this organization called Color Entertainment. I've been running it for 21 years now. And it's all of, it's creative executives of color. And the reason I started it with Bruce Evans back in 2000 was as as executives of color, we were very isolated. There was usually one of us in a department or one of us in a, on a floor of a company. And we were desperately, we were desperate to hold on, but it was wearing on us. It's, you know, microaggressions land so much harder on us than they do on anybody else. It's easy to feel despondent. It's easy to make missteps and and you make one big, you mm-hmm. know, faux pas and you're out. And so, and it takes you 18 months to find the next job. So we needed to be each other's people. And the way that the business worked at the time, I think it's less so now because agents have less power than they used to, was you had to go to, through an agent in order to get a job. So I couldn't call ABC if I knew that the head of programming job was open. I had to call someone at UTA or ICM or whatever, and they had to put me up for the job. Well, those people didn't look like me, right. none of them. So who was I going to go to for a recommendation? They, were gonna ha- they had their own people that they were going to, whoever that they'd been working with, but they weren't representing me. And they weren't representing any of my friends. And you can still say today, if you look at the rosters, there's probably, there's probably still a lot of imbalance and inequity in terms of who they have on their roster, how many people of color they have on their rosters. So it was really, really tough. So we had to do it for ourselves so that I could then call on someone else's behalf to get that gig. I think we're still dealing a little bit in that but it's it's getting better we're sort of sidelining some of that process but um but i i saw after you know so many years of 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 all of that how this whole business works so during through the color entertainment group we have the facebook group and everything and i'm constantly challenging our people and yeah. saying well what latino director have you put up for something lately and recently i just posted something about they picked they selected three people for some program. can't remember what program it was, but it was like some big announcement. And so I said, "Well, let's make all these people superstars." So mm-hmm. how are you going to bring them in? Are you going to bring them in for a meeting? Because right. we know that that's going to then cascade into other activity, and they're going to rise up. Right. Just in the way that there's a back channel that happens with all the diversity folks, we always get together so, and, and talk once a, once a year. how do we right. How do we circle the wagons around this director? and get that person up the food chain.
1: Right, well, I I feel like uh, I may be a case study in that. Uh, (laughs) uh, And I tell folks all the time how influential, important and um, game-changing it was to be in HBO Access uh, to help kind of galvanize all these like random skills I'd acquired over all the years and experiences and you know, running my own company and whatever, but like, I needed, I benefited, and I needed someone to kind of help me say, okay, all these things are floating. Let's p- grab them and put them into the pot, and and turn the temperature up to the right, you know, level, and put these ingredients together for like a meal that's called a TV direct, you know. <laughs>
2: Hi, it's Crystal Roberson, producing director of Queens on ABC, and you're listening to Let's Shoot with my brother, Pete Chapman. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook is Pete Chapman's book from Michael Weezy Productions. What started in 1993 has been a marathon of persistence and creative pivots, transitioning from indie filmmaker to teaching at NYU's acclaimed film school to running a production company, to directing television and commercials, and ultimately eyeing a return to the feature films that gave him his start. A mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration, this book is for any person targeting a successful career in the creative arts. Transitions, a director's journey and motivational handbook from Michael Weezy Productions.
1: So before we get to the book, like, can you speak to um, that HBO Access portion of it? And maybe not necessarily specifically, but like, what was the goal? How did you get um, directors like myself out into the, uh, you know, ecosystem of of working? What were the challenges? What did uh, directors fail to do when maybe they kind of came to the program and, and didn't necessarily, you know, pivot toward what you had hoped. That's a lot of questions, but. Um. It is a lot
0: of questions. Well, I'll give you the, let me give you the macro on the access program and the whys and and I think some of those successes. And I will tell you the failures. Um, when I came to HBO, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of really interesting things we can delve into here um, because I didn't know the rules. Of HBO. Mm. I come from NBC Universal. It's a very top-down organizational structure where somebody at the top says you do this, and then everybody goes, okay, we'll do this. This is how we're going to implement. Not so at HBO, which is done by consensus. It's a very circular mindset. So it's you talk to a couple people and then you circle back and you circle back and you get everybody's buy-in. Takes a lot longer. That's how they're used to it. They develop things in a lot. It takes a lot longer. Everything takes a lot longer. They bake the cake um, for a lot longer than than a broadcast network. But I didn't know when I went in there what I didn't know. So I get in there and I think I've done huge workouts with the presidents of all of the divisions of focus features and universal. And, and I have put them all in a room and I've had them brainstorm for me and blah, 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 blah. So I did that when I got to HBO. I'm like they wanted a program. Mike Lombardo wanted a program. And he wanted actually a writer's program first. And I said, Well, you won't support a writer's program because you won't tell your producers what to who to hire. I said, So what if I if I create eight great writers who've got great samples and then or nurture or mentor? Um, and then and then you don't hire them. On your shows and by the way you know hbo had so many fewer shows in general right i said the next year no one's going to come to the party i said so let's not do that i said until we've decided how we're going to implement a writer's program let's start with the director's program that you already have going that's supposed to we were supposed to spend three hundred thousand dollars a year according to the agreement that we had with the dga we didn't spend nearly that much maybe 50k And so that, and it was only a shadowing program and it was every other year. So it was like this weird stuff was happening, not really happening kind of thing. Nobody got, nobody booked jobs or anything before I showed up, but we had some amazing people. We had Nishika in the program before I showed up. Ryan Coogler was in the program in theory. he, He never actually sort of did the program, but we had some amazing people in our program and And yet there weren't. They weren't. There was no after that. And then the end then was not happening. So I said, let's go back. Let's figure out what we're going to do. And I go, okay, this is a program for a company that has so few slots. Almost every show is directed by one director. You know, the Nick was like one guy, Steven Soderbergh. Like there was just no room for anybody. So how do we make it a value add, and how do we develop people? And so I presented Lombardo with this this new thing and I said look an HBO credit matters so why don't we shoot a short so they can get a credit he's like okay let's do it so we gave we got had a little bit more money in the budget but it was pretty close to I think 300,000 was what we used the first year so it went up to 450 to shoot these three pieces god bless um, uh, effie brown because she was our first producer on it who just made made a made magic out of nothing we had no budget and then we had kimberly browning after that who i I call the wizard because she can make things materialize out of out of thin air but we had these great producers and we just decided to shoot something so they wrote and directed their pieces um the following year we were able to do a writer's program and again most of it was going to be we're going to develop these people and then throw them out into the universe because we don't have a place to necessarily pipeline them into but they deserve to be out there, and with the HBO name behind it, that's maybe that's enough. So that was our our idea. That was our mantra. We broke the internet twice. We didn't realize that we were that it was going to be so popular because we were modeling it. We we're modeling the intake of applications on NBC, which only got 500 at the time, only got 500 per cycle, and we're like, well, we'll get 500 people. I do know that we had an an, an argument. Me and Mike had an argument about. I said we should curate. I said I don't think you should throw it out to the universe because it will will overload it. He's like, no, throw it out. It should be access. We're calling it access. So I think in retrospect, I was right, but <laughs> but but he was he was right on a, on the macro idea of yes, it should be for everybody. So that was our first couple of years, and then that second year was well, since we're developing a piece of material, let's have the writers write it, and then produce it through the director's program. And so it worked really well for a couple of years. All in all, out of seven years of being at HBO, we had a 80 to 90% success rate, higher rate. Uh, we could never get a hundred percent because every year there was someone on the writer's side, usually who who dropped out, who they weren't ready. They didn't deliver their scripts. We either had to cycle them out of the program or they decided on their own that they didn't want to be a writer or they wanted to be a director or, or vice versa. Um, so, so you can't ever have a hundred percent because there are factors beyond your scope, but I think an 89 or 90% higher rate where people are working in the business effectively is pretty darn good.
1: That's amazing.
0: And I think the, the secret sauce of that is twofold on the writer's side. It's, we delved really, really, um, specifically we drilled down on truth and emotional content and your ability to tap into your personal stuff and put that yeah. on the page. We went, didn't, we didn't really look at structure as much as how much of you are on that page and how bare are you going to make yourselves? Those things always popped hundred percent. They were the ones that popped. And then on the director side, and I think on the writer side as well, it's not only are we bringing these people into the program, but we have to wrap our arms around them constantly and continually. So it's mm-hmm. it's not you're not just in a program for a year. You're we're following up with you. We're introducing you to people constantly. We're expanding your level of contacts. We're we're using our um, network to further your career, and that is the thing that every program. That's why these programs work. Mm-hmm. You know, I've 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 said this before. People people get very oogie about well, I don't want to be the diversity hire. I was a diversity hire. If I hadn't gotten in, I wouldn't have gotten there. Getting there on the merits is, is a ridiculous concept in this business where
1: you can be <laughs> somebody's
0: brother and get on their TV show. So why, why does anybody want to get out there on their, on their own? It's not, right. it's not about that. So you got to get in. And once you're in and, you ha- and it's about knowing enough people Really, that's what it is. You are building your village because you were right. in this business for the next 50 years. It's such and a you small town. Uh-huh.
1: You, you can't have it both ways too, because I, I probably have a similar argument where people are like, oh, well, it's a diversity hire. And it's like, okay, let's let's say the first, that, that somewhere along the line, it was a straight up, we want a black dude or a black person for this slot of 10 or 20. I don't fucking care. Right. Like, cause now I'm in and I'm doing <laughs> right now if, and then if I do a good job, then it will beget other work or it will help someone who wanted to hire me before, but didn't have the argument. Now they can use that, the fact that another company or network or whatever hired you. And they'll say, well, he just did, you know, blackish, maybe now he can do a typical over here right. with us. Right. And you know, the flip of it, too, is like if they're being compelled for whatever reason to try and diversify their slots of directors. Well, that's what we wanted in the beginning, no? Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, so then when someone's getting it, like because I've I've had things where it's like, oh, well, they're looking for a woman to direct uh, uh, in this final slot. And so, you know, it's not going to work out for you this time. That's great. I, I it, like we, we we can't we can't have it both ways.
3: Right. And so right, right. we got to
1: get in there and kill it and know that every time like for me I always felt like whoever's coming behind me like if I stink this up it's going to leave a stink around the idea of the diversity hire. Yeah. And that will be more challenging for the next person who comes behind. And that's behind, so what uh, yeah.
0: It's so unfair because, you know, the other guys don't have that same thing. Then it's just one guy who screwed up. Yeah,
3: yeah. This it's it's so- a
0: This is a crazy thing. There's so many barriers and so many hoops and so many. And I've got so many diversity executive horror stories to tell that maybe <laughs> one day we'll <laughs> fill a book. But it's it's crazy. I had I, I had one of my first conversations I had. At NBC Universal was with a successful, it was a, it was going into a second season and they were hiring directors. And I had to have a conversation about you had all white director male directors on your first year conversation. And I said to the, and it was a young, new, a new writer, and he'd been taking the advice of his studio. So his studio had been sitting over people, and I had to have that conversation too. But he says, Um, I said, so how was your your first 13 episodes? I said, did everybody hit it out of the park? And he goes, no, I got, he goes, maybe Mm
3: 50-50.
0: And I said, I I bet you I can beat those odds. Mm -hmm. I said, because every single person I send you is going to be stellar. So, and then he ended up doing a better job, second season. But the problem is that we have to go in there and fight for it. Right. We still have to explain why someone of color is is as good, or if not better, than the person that they, you know, they were tap tapping because they were buddies of somebody. It's all so right. ridiculous, isn't it? It's you work your butt off. I actually had a woman. I I think I could tell this story. I had a director come in, woman of color, sat on my sofa. And when I told her she had been really, really working, now she's really successful, but she'd been working her ass off to get jobs and it just wasn't coming. It just, she just was, she just couldn't get, just like me trying to get that job, you know, couldn't, she just couldn't nail it. And I told her the story about how somebody on one of the shows had gotten his gig as a director because he surfed with the showrunner and she burst into tears. Because she's like, I did everything right. Yeah, yeah. Well, now she's off to the races. I'm hoping that that story took. I'm mean, hopefully she, it made her angry enough to keep going and to fight. It can do the opposite. It can kill your spirit. Right. But we can't let yeah. it. I think there's just too much writing on it for all of us. Because if we if we give up who's gonna who's gonna stand in the way of the bullet for the next guy?
3: right
0: And I kind of feel like sometimes that's that was my job at NBC Universal. It was my job at Fox. It was my job at uh, at HBO. I stood in the in the way of the bullets a lot of the time, you know right. and then just had to keep fighting for that person who was standing behind me to get you know we just muscled through to get that next get them that next gig introduce them to one more person you know so advocate for them
1: strongly this is interesting i I couldn't have seen a better setup actually because because the pivot right is you advocating for yourself and taking the bullets for yourself right so how does that how does that happen um where you move to having a deal now with your former employer and writing on uh, our kind, yeah, our kind of people, of people and having a book out, like what was, what was that moment? And, uh, you know, let's, let's get into the book.
0: Okay. So, um, as we saw, it's been a long time coming. So I had been writing as a kid. I was writing specs, um, when I was working on that show back in the 80s. And then didn't see a way for me, a way forward for me. And I knew that I loved the written word and I loved comics. I was always at the comedy shows. So I was still feeding my creative Jones that I needed and, and found this really interesting life as a development executive and loved it. You know, there was nothing better than working with a writer on a project and, um, and the development process and then being able to see people get their, get their dreams realized. So I think it was just all part of the whole. All along, I'd been taking writing classes and improv classes. And um, I wrote Respect Scandal at the U, at a UCLA course. And I wrote a chapter of a novel uh, at a course, an online course with uh, at Stanford. So I was already continuing the journey as a writer. I have boxes and boxes of screenplays of ideas and short stories and things and I would show them to people every now and again so I've I always knew that there was something that I wanted to to do in terms of writing and the funny thing is too um and I took the the Warner Brothers directing program as a, I sort of audited but they make you do the work and uh and they kept saying, oh, you should direct, you should direct. And I'm like, I, I actually see the world as words on a page. Mm. Maybe that'll come eventually, but it's really not the thing that gets me up in the morning. Get, directing actually for me feels like it's a, it takes me away from what I'm supposed to be doing, which is the writing part. So I was just trying to learn a new trick. I was just continuing to keep developing myself as an artist and as and as a way to talk to writers about their writing that was really one of my goals i want to know what i'm what should Should. what language should i use that's better than what language i had yesterday so that i get to um i'm at hbo i decide to get my master's i get my master's and as part of my master's program they ask you to um to apply to programs and to festivals it's just part of their thing. And I was like, okay, so I applied to Nichols Fellowship. I applied to like a couple other things. Um, and I applied to Sundance. And I got to, I got pretty far in nickels. I want to say, did I I certainly semifinals. I don't remember if I got finals. I got down to the, the like the last, the last whatever thing is. And um, and I got into Sundance and I had a panic attack. <laughs> This is tw- <sighs> this is just before, this is 2019, October, or at at August, August. Or I think it was August of, of 2019, they tell me I'm getting in, and I completely fall apart, and I'm like, oh, shit, now <laughs> everyone's going to know what I've been doing secretly. i had been blogging about um, doing short stories about, I call them bus stories, about riding the bus. Ever since 2015, when I gave up my car, I'd been riding the bus in Los Angeles. People thought I was really weird, but I met so many amazing people. And had so many crazy stories that I started blogging about them on Facebook. So people were getting the idea that I was sort of letting this creative part out of of me. It's like a slow moving little, you know, let me just sort of test the waters. So I've been doing that anyway. I get into Sundance. I go, oh shit, now people are going to know my secret, which is that I've been writing.
3: Right.
0: And um. And then when I get off the plane, I got off the plane at Sundance in in, uh, in Utah, and I literally felt like I had slipped into the, the right skin for the very first time in my life. I felt wow. different. I felt transformed. I felt like when they were starting to talk to me as a writer, as opposed to an executive, when I didn't have to sit on the dais and be the person giving the notes, I, was, I felt like I was released. Like There was like this burden that had been lifted from me. Not to say that I didn't love every second of working with writers and developing. I did. But I also know this thing about myself, which is that every six years or so, I change jobs. And I completely pivot huh. to a completely different thing. And it used to scare the crap out of my parents because they're like, oh no, what's she doing? She's leaving a job. She's leaving a well-paid 401k. What is she doing? And then my mom eventually goes, "I." she realized that, She goes, no, she's going to, she's got this. She's okay. She's going to, she's going to take it. She's going to be okay. So every six years you'll see on my resume, I'm doing something completely different than I did before. I'm learning. I'm trying to get that learning curve and I'm trying to do things that scare the crap out of me. And when I went to NBC universal and became a corporate person, the very first thing that they asked me to do was to do, to moderate panels. And I was terrified. I had never had to do it before, and I knew that if I didn't do it, if I didn't suck it up and go th- walk through the fear, they were going to ask me for something harder the next time, and I wouldn't be prepared. So right. I did it. It scared the crap out of me. I went to my doctor and got a beta blocker because I was so petrified. I had never done public speaking before. And I took that half of a beta blocker and I called my uncle, who's a minister, and I said, pray for me. And I never asked him to pray (laughs) for me. I said, pray for me. And I got through it. And then by the end of my time there, that was literally, that was August of 2007. By the end of the time there in 2010, I did an event for all 20,000 employees worldwide. And I was speaking in front of 20,000 employees worldwide. So if I hadn't taken that first step, I wouldn't have been prepared for the last step.
3: Right.
0: So jumping off the end of the gangplank has to feel somewhat comfortable at a certain point. So Sundance was the first thing. I knew that it was right. Top of 2020, they, uh, Warner Brothers, Warner, Warner Media asked me to, to re-up for a promotion. And without hesitating, I said, no, I was so clear at that point. It was so evident that every fiber in my body said, no, you have to do something else. And I said, really, I said, look, I'll just, I have 18 months on my contract. I'll just ride it out. I go, I can do this in my sleep. I'll just ride it out. And they go, what, wait a minute. Why don't you take this deal? We'll give you a deal. By July, middle of July, I took the deal. And uh, and a week after I took the deal, I had a book deal and i think it was the universe going i hear your panic i know that you're coming it's coming up we, right. we know that at a certain point you're going to freak out so here's something that will help you not freak out <laughs> go do this thing for a little bit right like this book and i already started to write a book about development and writing and i had a i still have a book about diversity on my laptop that that i couldn't sell But it worked to to let me put some of the, download some of the stuff that was on my brain that I felt is stuff that everybody should know, but we'd never tell anybody. Right. And that's the why I wrote the book. I wrote it because I'd gone to all these, given a lot of talks and gone to all these conferences and everybody asked the same questions. I'm like, well, let me just tell everybody the same, the answers that I have. This is just, this is just me saying it. it's not, it's not necessarily, you know, the, 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 the entire industry saying this, right. this is me saying this is my experience. But hopefully it will help people understand the mindset of the executive a little bit better, understand what we look for, understand um, what the town, how the town operates, understand how not to be annoying when you're trying to get, you know, in the door. Understanding that it's important for you to keep going and why it's important for you to keep going. And if you have those moments of despondency, remember that it's not really about you. It's about what you're putting out in the world that's going to help somebody else. That, yeah, you want to sell your thing. But if you just remember how I felt about watching Roots and how that comforted me and made me feel like, yeah, I matter. And yeah, there I have a history too. And yeah, shouldn't we celebrate it? If I can do something like that for somebody else, that's that's isn't that what we're on the planet for? Isn't that why we're telling stories? Is to connect and to share and to say, guess what? You're not alone. You're not crazy. So I think that that's That's the beauty of. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: I was, I was gonna say that's the beauty of of the book and in today's times. It's like, you know, you can hear, like when I was growing up, there was what, making movies, Sidney Lumet, right? And then it was like, oh, well, when Spike came with a book, it was like different because it was like, I I like the the tone, the voice, the the references are are more like in my sweet spot of kind of like resonation, right? Um and now we can read your book and get everything that you're talking about and have you in our back pocket or over our shoulder or whenever we need to kind of get a reminder of the process and have someone speaking to us in a way that is counsel, but also like supportive you know Um, which I think is the the great tone of the book um I was going to ask you what's the what's the toughest uh so I'm gonna I'm gonna read the table of contents. You've got uh, in chapters in order: laying the groundwork, the executive mindset, getting in, let's do lunch, creating your game plan, the winning pitch, the pilot script, notes, and then congrats! You sold your script. What was the toughest chapter to write?
0: Ooh. Um. I think the toughest was probably laying the groundwork because so many things have changed. And I think if anything gets revised in future iterations, if I'm so lucky to revise it, um, <laughs> I think it's the fact that things change so quickly. And when I first re- wrote it, you know, we we went from, I grew up in broadcast. So I was really aware of broadcast. And then I, of course, pivoted to, you know, working it in the cable side, and then into the premium cable side. So I understand it, but it's changing so fast with the streamers, and their language is so—it's—it's um, it's very fleeting. And I've even heard—I've even heard of people talking about in my MFA program, they would use terms that we don't—we don't really use um, in daily life. And so I was really cognizant about not trying to to overpromise. You know, terminology that that's not going to exist tomorrow, right. and right now, and I had just had conversations with people at Netflix and, and at Amazon about the terms that they use about their about their um, their audiences, but they're still trying to figure it out. So, trying to capture that in a book, in a chapter was hard because I guarantee you in about two years, those terms won't exist just right. in the fact that, you know, Netflix didn't exist like 20 years ago. So we're dealing with such new things. And I think that we're in for another shift. Like the ground is still shifting underneath us. We're still in quicksand, Right. nothing is is safe. And if you've seen how quickly we moved from cable was king for 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Cable's no longer king. Now it's premium, but it was premium right. for a minute. And then premium became like even HBO was HBO now and go and nobody understood what the difference was. Well, right. one was, you know what I mean? One was if you had to package and one was standalone, but we didn't understand it. And then we went from that, even internally, we didn't understand it. And then from that to HBO Max. and then
1: Right. And then that's I I don't that, even know how to credit myself because I'm like, I'm like, did I do HBO's the flight attendant or okay. HBO Max's the flight like in the in the bio? I don't know what to say. Yeah, yeah. You know?
0: Yes, yes, yes. Well, technically it's HBO Max because it wasn't developed at HBO, it was developed at Max, but now those things are <laughs> converging, right? Right. So if those those things are converging and and again there's you know, who, who even knows who, who even knows. So I feel like there's, I think that we're in for another shift. There was also going to be that moment where, you know, every, I think we all predicted that each individual standup was going to have their own channel. Like actors were going to have their own channel. Some of them do like Kevin mm-hmm. Hart's got his own channel, but then you go, but we're still in a, in a big melting pot of nothing's really defined itself. Yet. And I don't think anything's defined. I don't think it's going to happen for a minute, but something's coming. I don't know what it is.
3: Right.
0: But it is going to be great. So I don't know what it (laughs) is. But it feels like we're on the precipice of something new, even as we sit here today and we know what today looks like. So that's why it was hard. It was, and again, this is not a, the book is not a manual. It is not a, here's the history of television. It's not a, here's how to write a a pilot. Like I needed to stop short of entering into, I had a whole chapter on writing the comedy pilot. That wasn't my Uh. lane for this book. That's not what this book was about. There are plenty of books out there about here's how to write your comedy pilot. Manny Bassanis just wrote a brilliant book about that. Go write it, go read his book. So it's trying to figure out well, what could I say? And how do I stay within the lane of this is what I need from you as an executive. This is what you mm-hmm. need to know about dealing with me. That's that's I need you to know this is what I'm looking for in your pilot pitch, but I'm not going to get into this is how we're developing your pilot right. because that could have been a whole book on its own. We right. could have talked about act breaks versus no act breaks versus. You know your characters and developing your your you know um uh your story and breaking story. We could have done a whole other thing, right? Comedy versus drama. And I needed to make sure that I was staying in a lane, and I also wanted to keep it readable. I wanted to keep it fast paced. I was really modeling it after Stephen King's On Writing and um, Anne Lamott's Bird mm-hmm. by Bird. I wanted to make sure that people felt like that they could get through it and it didn't feel like a labor. Right. Because right. that's when you check out and you don't get to the end and at the end you need to know we need your material. We need you to keep going. We need you to to feel like you have momentum coming out of this book so that you want to go put something on the page. So that was right. the whole goal. It was really concerted uh, uh, effort about, I think, motivating and trying to demystify You know, we're not, we're not all that smart. Executives are just the same. We are the same level of smart as you are. We've read the same books that you did. We are the same. We're the opposite side of the coin of the exact same process. We are doing our best to try to help you. If we fall short, that's because we're human beings and we're Mm. just not that, you know, we, we have our failings. But we're all trying to do something. We're all trying to make something. So that was the whole that's the Megillah.
1: that's the Magilla and audiobook coming soon.
0: I just recorded it <laughs> on Monday and Tuesday. I just did it. That is a trip, having to hear because i also i I don't love my voice. I have like a very nasly voice. Like I'm just like, but um, but I did this little demo for them. They're like, yes, you can do your own audiobook. And I'm like, I know how I speak and I know that I speak in a very, I have a very rambly kind of whatever way of speaking. And I'm like, not anybody, other people aren't going to really be able to do it without it feeling odd. So I did it and it was a crazy experience. That's hard.
1: You know, I, so I, I'm, I'm now auditioning to do my own. So I, I think I have to do something to, you know, sell myself as myself. Yes. Uh, and then we'll do see. It. But. I, I I want to because it's, it's, it's very much like you, there's a cadence and there's a, like, you know, you know, you know where you were emphasizing things and, you know, I I love the idea of being able to hear the person who wrote it in my ear.
0: Right. Exactly. Here's one reason that I also made, I made sure that I did it. I bought a book on audible recently. It was the Mm -hmm. life autobiography of Booker T. Washington. A man of color. It was right. read by a man not of color, and I went. That will never happen here. Right. I can't have that right. happen. And it was so right. terrible that that I couldn't listen to it. I just couldn't listen to it. I was like, "That's that's so wrong on so many levels."
1: Well, not on this one. We got that right. So <laughs> exactly. Here's the. With, with I turned the corner with two final questions, and this one's new, and I I don't know. Maybe it's interesting. Maybe it's not. But I'm asking people um, in the movie of your life, uh, what is the genre? Who will star as you, and who is directing said film? Or, or, or I'm sorry, it could be it could, it could be a, a, a limited series. It could be you know a sitcom like in the story of your life in today's um, you know different buckets of content delivery. Who's playing you? What genre, and who's directing?
3: Wow, tall order. I will say genre. Hmm. I'm gonna say it's certainly in the comedy vein.
0: I would love to say that I'm a musical. I'm
3: a musical,
0: <laughs> I'm gonna say I'm a musical.
3: All right.
0: It's a musical All right. comedy, here's why because I've been told by many people that I sing in the office all the time. I have virtually no recollection of half the time, but people, somebody used to say, Oh, you used to sing opera all the time. I'm like, that doesn't sound like me, Mm -hmm. but I was constantly singing in the office. I used to have, you know, in the old, in the old days at Fox, they would put a a plastic pad, you know, underneath your chair so you could roll around on the carpet. Right. Oh,
3: right. And I was always
0: doing like a, a break dance at a certain point where I'd go big finish, and then I would tap dance and do this, right? Right.
3: And
0: so right, it would right. have to be a musical comedy. That's a that's the weirdest question. I love it. Who would direct? Um. So can they can they be dead? Because it might be Busby Berkeley. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, who directs the best musical comedies these days?
1: It could be dead. Busby's a good choice.
0: It has to be somebody who really understands the action of a musical where you feel like you're in the middle of it and you're moving along with it. So it might be, I don't know enough of the, maybe whoever did Singing in the Rain. I don't remember who that was. Um, And then who would be in it? Okay, everybody for my whole life has said, and I'm I'm so uh, um, grateful for this um, comparison, but they always said that Vanessa Williams, I look like Vanessa Williams. I look nothing like Vanessa Williams except that we're the same color generally. It'd be Vanessa Williams because she can sing and she can dance um, and she's a brilliant actress. So I would go Vanessa Williams.
1: There you go. I love it. Coming in uh, winter 2023. <laughs> 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 I need and a story then, uh, though. I
0: need a story. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it, we just sold it. We just sold it. We'll figure it out. I'll
0: find it in the um,
1: executive chair. Exactly. And then the last one is, um, what three qualities um, do you think that someone needs to make it in this business? And I'm sure it's been touched on in, in our conversation, but like if you were to just extract and say, it's like, you know, boom, boom, boom. What are those three characteristics or qualities?
0: You need, for sure you need strength, Mm. emotional strength. You need resilience. And I say strength because it is, I find it's hard, To keep going, it's hard to. And again, let me go back to the thing we started talking in the beginning, which was the St. Vincent Masterclass. In it, she talks about, and again, every single thing she said is stuff that we've all said before, so it's not anything new. But I just love the fact that she did say it. She was so vulnerable about all of it, and you, we will all constantly tell ourselves that we are worthless and that we don't know what we're doing. I don't know where that comes from. I don't know if we've seen so many movies that, that just when somebody gets something good, they're, they're kneecapped, right? It's always like, hey, something's going to go great. And then, up oh, she trips and she falls on her face. We're always right. expecting that fall. We're always expecting the bad thing to happen. And so we tend to, to work out of fear. We tend to live in, in that place of fear. Don't get too comfortable. Don't, don't rejoice too much. Don't, 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 ex- don't, don't, don't um, acknowledge the good things that are going to happen because something's going to tear it apart. And so we, right. we tiptoe around our lives and we don't necessarily live out loud into the fullest. So you need strength to be able to barrel through regardless. And you need that resi- resilience to keep going even when You do get kicked in the teeth because you will get kicked in the teeth. But if you don't take it personally, if you don't, if you, because I think we all take it personally. We think, Oh, that they didn't call us back because they don't like us. It's not has nothing to do with you. It's that they're doing a thousand things. They're off in their own movie, living their own life. And you are a footnote in that scene. You are not in their scene. So you just have to keep going. So it's those two things. I think you desperately need. And then I would say the last thing I said, the thing that you brought up earlier, which is you need someone in your corner. You mm-hmm. need someone who tells you every day, keep going. You need that person. When I was working with Jonathan Axelrod, every single day that we were, every single day that we were in working together, he would call me up and he'd go, "Hey, Sunshine, let's go sell a show today." Hey, mm-hmm. Sunshine, let's go sell a show today. Every single day. I could not get up and do it without hearing that every day because it's so hard. You're willing, you're going to get a no 90% of the time. We keep at it like little crack addicts because we know that that 10% is there that we might win at the roulette table one mo one time. And it's, isn't that crazy? It's the most joyous, brilliant thing about this business is that that little glimmer of hope will keep you at it. Being able to tell that one little story is that you desperately need to get out of your body. So I do feel like having somebody could be your mom, could be your wife, could be your baby that you look at and you go, I'm going to do this for her. I'm going to make this world better for her. But there's, there's those three things I think. And I think that I feel terribly bad when people don't have someone that soft place to land, that place that's going to go, no, 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 you're not insane. No, 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 that's a great idea. No, 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 you are actually good. I love how you wrote that sentence. I love how you wrote that dialogue. Like we just need that little, when we hold onto that little grain of something, it matters so much. Right. When you when, so some, when you those... do a wonderful piece of, of, you do art and you make art, you take someone's writing and you make art out of it, Pete that's you need someone to tell you thank you for that art and i hmm. think when we don't have that it makes it so much harder to get up and do it again
1: the next day right. I, I agree 100 percent. emotional strength resilience and support and sounds like acknowledgement even
0: yes acknowledgement
1: acknowledgement right yeah. um well, Kelly Edwards, this has been awesome. This this goes in the category of uh, someone that I already knew, who now I know better because of the podcast. Um, and, <laughs> I, love podcast. I love your podcast.
0: I love that you, you do That's... this too. This is so important, and I love that you not only do your you have the most interesting people on your podcast. So thank you for including me, but that you allow them the time to have a conversation that is so much more in depth you know, you really go to that place where let's unpack, you know, who we are so that we can share that with somebody else. I feel like it's a different kind of storytelling, right? It's a different kind of connecting. Mm -hmm. So I don't know why you started this, but I love that you did it. And I think you are, as you know, I'm just, I'm really one of your biggest fans. And unfortunately, I feel like I have way taken way more credit for you than I deserve to, because as I was hearing some of your other podcasts and hearing all the stuff that you've done before, I'm like, "Oh, I didn't really do that much. I totally didn't do yeah, that much look, in, in the in the in the, the book of of your life." But I want to. I'm thankful to have this little tiny piece of it.
1: Bit, well, well, I, and I and I will say, and there are two things that I'll I'll, I'll leave the audience with at this moment. Um, there was a time when I came into your office. And I saw my name on the whiteboard, and I think you had East Coast directors and West Coast, like, and people like that were that maybe had gone through the program or 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 maybe not. I don't know if I had at that point. And it was super affirming for me because, and I don't know if I was meant to see it, but I saw it, and I was like, I don't know if I'm on any motherfucking whiteboards anywhere. So like this this right here is is huge, right? And and then the other thing was, and I think we've chatted about it when we worked on our 30-second pitches, and, like, here's who I am, and, like, you know, the fact that, like, all of our meetings are predicated on being able to clearly communicate who you are while taking the time to craft something that's honest but strategic in connecting you to what these folks have to say with their show. And I had done all of these things for all of these 15, 16 years before I came into the program and I was very self-deprecating about it or thought I was and you were like, you sound bitter. And I was like, I guess I fucking am bitter. Yeah, I, underneath it all I am but I've chosen to a, uh, adopt this technique that really is not doing what I think it's doing. And when I tell you like, that pivot, just extracting the self-deprecation out, just made it a clean, this is who I am, what I'm doing, what I've done, how I see the world. I honestly feel like that coupled with, you know, other things picked up along the way was when things began to click because I knew that I could just go into a room and it ain't about who's on the other side, totally. It's about me having researched that and presenting the best self I can. so I can go from program to, you know, hired. So it it's, you know, it, what you've done with the programs and with your advocacy and now with the book is monumental and you'll probably never know all the people for whom it made a, it, it provided a pivotal moment for their journey. So thank you. Oh,
0: thank you. That was lovely to hear. I appreciate that.
1: What's up, people? This is Pete Chapman. Follow me on Instagram and on Twitter via at Pete Chapman. Follow the pod on Facebook on our Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman official page and hit up our mailbag with questions, suggestions, or hey, donations if you're feeling like it via Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman at gmail.com. And just in case you need to know how to spell it, that's Pete with the last name C-H-A-T-M-O-N. All right. That was episode 34 of Let's Shoot with Pete Chapman starring Kelly Edwards and I will be back soon with another episode. We are figuring that out. I don't know uh, what the topic will be. Might be a craft episode. Um, Might be another interview. Uh, I'm going to have to play catch up again. Like uh, I mentioned in the beginning of this pod that I do them in bunches and my bunches have run out. But I'm back on it. I'm wrapping my episode uh, uh, two of Reasonable Doubt on Tuesday. And uh, that'll give me a little more time to start reaching out to folks and um, lining them up. So if you happen to know anyone that I should be interviewing, you know, hit us up. Let's shoot with Pete Chapman. Uh, that's the Instagram handle. Or hit me up directly, Pete Chapman, on Instagram or Twitter. And uh, as always, y'all, stay safe. Spread love. And keep creating.